If you use the internet on a daily basis, and chances are you do, you probably don't put much thought into cybersecurity. You know, your network connections, the pages you visit, the files you download. You should be thinking about these all the time. Welcome to And Security for All. Your host is Kim Hakem. We're here to help you understand, in general terms, how and why your cybersecurity should be kept in check. Now, here is Kim Hakem. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, it's a wonderful Friday. Uh, it's nice and hot outside where I'm at. I, I hope everyone else is not getting this heat. Uh, but welcome to And Security for All. Today, I've got a, a great guest. Um, he's, uh, he's a good friend of mine, and we, uh, we've we we've spoken a lot about some of the topics we're going to be covering today, so I hope everyone enjoys the show. Um, I asked um, about any future events uh, first thing, and they said that they were uh, the next event is August 23rd. So I think the whole crew is going to get a few weeks of well-deserved rest uh, to um, to kind of recoup. They had a really great event yesterday in Tampa, and uh, the next event's coming in at the end of August. So I think they've got a few weeks to, to rest and, and to really get ready for the, the next event. Um, this is my uh, second time in two weeks, so I'm really excited to be here. I'm um, joined today by Tom Vincent. Um, he is... Uh, like I said, a friend of mine, we've worked together for many years, and the things that we're going to talk about today is around the, the new regulations, the new compliance requirements of, of privacy, and specifically transparency, and how transparency and some of the new requirements can actually conflict, and what that means for organizations, and how do the organizations really deal with that particular situation. So I invite everybody to to jump online if you're watching this on LinkedIn um, to throw questions into the chat so we can get those in front of, of Tom and and really pick his brain on some of this stuff. So welcome, Tom. I really appreciate you coming on and joining us today. Thanks, Jonathan. I'm sorry for that Peter Brady moment there just for a second. Uh, no, I appreciate being here. Uh, you know, it's always fun to fun to talk. I think the you know generally just to, to warn the audience, the biggest challenge for us is to stay on topic, but but uh, uh, hopefully we'll be yeah. able to do that today. Stay on topic and stay under time. That's our biggest thing. That's right. Um, That's right. We, we've spoken many, many days right into the night. So, <laughs> well, um, first of all, tell us about yourself. So tell us, you know, kind of who you are, what you do, and kind of give the audience a, a good background on yourself. Sure. Um, I am one of the cybersecurity practice group leads at Gable Got Walls. For those of you not familiar with Gable Got Walls, we're a general practice firm based in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We've got just over 100 lawyers. Um, we're in uh, several different states. Uh, my part of it uh, deals with cybersecurity and data privacy. Um, my background is primarily on the compliance side of things. Uh, spent 15 years in financial institutions doing various uh, serving various compliance roles, including uh, anti-money laundering, security, privacy, and uh, corporate governance. So what I do primarily is work with clients to make sure that things don't happen. Um, you know, the, uh, I am a, what's referred to as a transactional attorney. Uh, I'm not a litigator. I, I don't try to win a fight. I try to avoid it. And so a lot of what Jonathan and I have talked about over the years uh, is how to keep bad things from happening. Um, and uh, in addition to that, uh, I also chair uh, Gable's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee. Uh, I do uh, some other work in that space uh, with other organizations as well. Uh, and 
I guess really, Jonathan, the main thing I'd want to I'd want to say is, as I mentioned before, and as you hinted at, you know, Jonathan and I have have dealt with these issues and talked about these issues uh, for many years. And uh, I'd encourage you, if you have any questions, to uh, throw them in the chat. Let us know because. Uh, one thing we found is even though we work in the same space, our perspectives are much different because we're both working uh, different sides of the issue. So uh, please feel free to ask because uh, I think both of us may have an answer for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, being on the CISO side, I, I'm right there with you. You, know, you try to prevent things and you try to do whatever you can to make sure that things don't happen. Um, and that's kind of actually how we got together all those years ago is uh, working on Gramley's Blyly um, and a few other things that, you know, kind of came out in that same time frame. And we started working together to work through the uh, problems of understanding it, um, implementing it, maintaining it, understanding it, you know, all those things. And that's really what I wanted to bring you on for, because I really, number one, I respect, you know, the things that you have done. Um, you're extremely knowledgeable about this stuff. And we always have a good time on this, you know, <laughs> even though it may be boring, a lot of people kind of roll their eyes when we talk about compliance and privacy, but I really enjoy this stuff. I know you really enjoy this stuff. So I, I think it'd be a lot of fun. So again, thank you for coming on. I think, uh, I think the crowd's going to like it. Oh, absolutely. And, and a couple of, of one housekeeping thing, and then just another, I think, kickoff point, um, standard disclaimer, um, the views expressed today are, are mine and do not necessarily represent the views of Gable Gottwalls. Um, but as a kickoff point, I wanted to talk about one of the words in the title of this program today, which Jonathan and I have dealt with a lot, it's the word expectations. Um, when we talk about information, when we talk about security, when we talk about privacy, as, as Jonathan said, it can kind of get a little dry, but if you bring it back to this idea of, of well, what do you expect? That's where uh, a number of the issues that we're going to be talking about can get uh, resolved or can just be made worse is what are the expectations of the people who are involved in the transaction, in the arrangement, in the agreement? Um, what are my expectations, for example, when I give an online retailer my credit card information? Uh, what are the government's expectations when they're asking that retailer or another company for information that may include my information? And so uh, I'd, I'd encourage you as you, as you are uh, listening today to think about not just what we may say in terms of sort of the dry technical piece, but just in your own life, in your own world. What, what are your expectations when you give information to someone? And what are other parties' expectations with respect to your information? Now, Tom, do you think over the last, let's say, seven years, but even as far back as maybe 10 to 15, you know, you start looking at some of the things that were changing back with the data privacy directive and the and the kind of the mindset of the new age of cybersecurity information. Contained. But do you think those expectations have been changing, you know, from what it was 25 years ago to what it was 20 years ago to 15 to 10 to now? Do you think that that's evolving? I, I think so. And, and honestly, Jonathan, I'd say I'd go back even further than that. I'd say because I remember uh, in the early 2000s when the USA Patriot Act was adopted and the regulations hit the banking industry with respect to information collection on customers. And at that time, 
there was a big push to get a lot of this information. There really wasn't as much of a push on what you did with it once you got it. It was, well, we're going to collect all of this information and we've got to be able to use it, getting to that uh, argument of, of or that idea of transparency that you're talking about is whatever you, you get the information and you use it. Uh, in many instances, you're sharing it with the government for uh, identity verification purposes, for anti-money laundering efforts, things like that. But then uh, go forward uh, some years from that, and then that pendulum started to swing and, and swung really far on the other side towards the security uh, approach, which was not uh, sharing the information, not using it, but you got it and you secured it. And right. the default was you don't share it. The default was you don't use it unless you absolutely have to. Um, and now I think you're seeing that start to swing back as, uh, as there are more and more uh, capabilities to use that information when people have seen what, what, that, what can be done with that. Certainly from uh, a monetized standpoint, when you're looking at some of your data aggregators, but now with some of the things that the government is doing uh, in terms of stepping up efforts to uh, require the collection of more and more information about uh, individuals and companies uh, realizing the, the power that is in that information. Well, yeah, and, and I was going to uh, ask you about that because, I mean, I remember back way too many years ago when I was in college, the term big data was really coming to its own where people were learning how to do it and they were understanding what that meant. And, you know, I think that that from a security perspective, because at, at that time, there wasn't this idea of cybersecurity, at least in most organizations. And there certainly wasn't this idea of privacy in the organizations, but there was this idea of there is value in in data, you know, and you start thinking about all of the, um, you know, the membership programs and the shoppers memberships programs, a little, uh, you know, key ring things, rebadges so they could, you know, honestly, so they could track what you were buying and you know, all these other things that became a huge market to be able to understand what the customers were doing, what the market was doing. So there was a big push to that, you know, again, I mean, that was, um, I'm going to say a lot of years ago, I don't want to say how old I am, <laughs> but it was a lot of years ago, but that became a big deal. And looking back now, you know, I could see the writing on the wall of the collection, of all that data, is great for certain things, but there's also a lot of risk to that because you're capturing a lot of PII, uh, a lot of sensitive PII, if we're going to use the GDPR term, uh, a lot of things that could turn around and be used to hurt people and to harm people. And and when we think about compliances, you know, that was also the same time frame, you know, in that same general time frame of things like HIPAA coming around and the beginnings of GLBA. And, you know, a lot of these things start as like, hey, yeah, you know, we, we do need to protect data we need we need to be able to use it be able to manage it we need to move it but we also need to protect it so you know i think that this is where we're at right now has really started I mean, what do you think 25 30 years ago kind of that build up of that, that snowball of spinning you know not necessarily out of control but at a fair growing pace i i, I think so just just to go back to you know the the uh 
the passage of the USA Patriot Act and the, the regulations implementing it, I can tell you, having worked in, in banking at the time, the approach of the regulators and therefore by extension uh, bankers was generally get, get as much information as you could about your client. And you had that both from a, a government requirement standpoint for customer identity verification, but you also had it um, keep in mind that, that for years, banks have been in the business of knowing what their customers are about to be able to better serve them. Uh, whether that is a, a commercial lending customer or a customer on the uh, in the wealth management wealth management or or trust administration components of an organization, and so just let's take that as our starting point for purposes of the discussion. You have a big push to collect a lot of information. The default was not uh, don't get it unless you need it. It was get it in case you need it. Right. And so then when we got all of this information, then the, the because it was essentially sitting around and you had, uh, you know, you started to see some data breaches come across, you started to see uh, if you look at, and I know you're familiar with this uh, as I am, if you look at a lot of the state data breach statutes that were passed, you know, Oklahoma's was passed in 2008. Um, a lot of those data breach statutes were premised on particular pieces of information, still continue to be premised on particular pieces of information. Yep. Um, and, and many of them have not been updated since that time. So we're still, so, you know, let's say uh, going from collection of a great deal of information to putting these reporting requirements in place at the state level for residents if particular pieces of information are compromised. But while some of the uh, data breach statutes require reporting only if there is a risk of harm, you know, you couple that with uh, the litigation of a data breach where the actual value, the, the immediate value, shall we say, of information is litigated and it's often very difficult for that actual harm to be proven because of the uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for because of the uh, the lack of perhaps an immediate value of that information because the the access value of that information is not recognized and what I mean by that is you get uh, you know, if you get my name and my social security number, does that have any absolute value on its own? I would argue that it does, but is there, you know, is there, is there a dollar value that I would, that, that that costs me if immediately, if it gets out, not necessarily, there's not an immediate financial damage, but that gives someone access to, for example, opening up a credit card, opening up a bank account, doing something like right. that, in which case then that activity may cause me damage, may result in some damage to uh, my person, my character, my finances because of some debt that is racked up. But yep. it's, it, again, it's, it's, it's a, a sort of damage that isn't necessarily recognized by the court system and 
as a result by businesses that are necessarily looking at how this information should be protected because they're looking at the pieces of data going back to 2003, I think it was when, when the regulations were implemented for USA Patriot, uh, you're looking at this distinct, discrete uh, uh, set of data elements as opposed to, well, what is it that I can do that I can do with this? Right. Well, okay. Let me ask you, because when we think about the harm issue, you know, mm -hmm. does the release of this information actually cause harm to an individual? Um, do you think that that's changing? Because, you know, when you look at GDPR specifically um, and this idea that it doesn't necessarily, I mean, what is the limitation on that? You know, I understand that could it cause harm? I know what that means, but I also, from a cybersecurity perspective, know what I can do with that information mm -hmm. as it relates to an attack. You know, we kind of talked about that last week on the show where we were attacking families and you start with some of the information and you kind of gather it together. So I can, I can demonstrate the harm and I can do it almost live, you know, with an understanding that, you know, depending on what the audience is. So do you think that with GDPR and this idea of the private right to action or with the changes in the, in the cybersecurity mindset of how we can use that data and how we're seeing it being used in the attacks out in the world, do you think that that's changing or do you think that will change from a court's perspective? <sighs> I think it is changing, uh, but one, one of the things that at least, and again, this is my pers just my opinion on this. I think that the way it's changing is not from a not from a determination of the value or the the amount of the harm. It's the assignment of a value to that. You know, GDPR has there is a there is a fine that is assigned to that. Yeah. Um, just like with, for example, HIPAA is a good example of this as well. If you look at uh, the damages or the penalties that are typically assigned to covered entities or business associates under HIPAA, the issue isn't what was the harm to the to the patients whose information was released. It's it is more a a fixed value or an assigned value. Uh, applied to the controls that were or were not in place. It's not, right. we're going to fine you. That, now, don't get me wrong, there are some additional penalties that are, that, that may be levied with respect to, you know, damages to the individuals. But if you look at the way that that penalty structure typically works, it's an arbitrary amount that's assigned. It's not a determination of the damage. It's like we know this is valuable and this is the value that we've assigned to it, but we don't really have a way to to quantify that as a result of this breach. Yeah. And so therefore, we're going to tell you that, well, because you didn't do this, here's the here is the here is the value of what you didn't do, essentially. Right. Now that I mean that is separate from the punitive. You know, when you're talking about punitive damages by a data protection authority or someone to say, hey, you didn't protect this, you know, regardless of any value to the data subject, there is the fact that you didn't protect us here is a fine, you know, that 2% or 4%. So do you think that is changing things? Because it's, I mean, 
again, you're not to get onto a GDPR show on this, but those those numbers at two percent for that's huge for some organizations. Um, and then you have that whole, in some cases, for privacy laws, is that private right of action. So, do you think that could be changing people's mindsets? And I know this is not really the topic that we're talking about. You know, it's kind of a tangent. But what do you think about that? I think that is, I think that is changing some people's minds. I think that the difficulty is, as you and I have seen for years, is getting people to understand how these things apply to them. Uh, and I, I, I. I you know, the, the word that comes to mind is rationally, because often when right. people think about this, they think, oh, well, you know, that's that's a that's a law in another country that doesn't apply to me here. Um, that's you know, they're not going to pay attention to me. Um, well, as we've seen in many of these things, they're not going to pay attention to you until they do. Um, right. It's it's one of those things where. Just like there are a lot of people that cheat on their taxes and. It's not like there is necessarily a, a, a scanner that the government has to go and scan everyone's tax returns and see who, in fact, is cheating right. on their taxes. But yep. if they look at your return and you happen to have cheated on your taxes, then they're going to figure it out. Sure. Absolutely. So, no, so I think that, with, you know, and one of the things I wanted to get back to on your when we were talking about this dan the, the issue of damages and something you'd mentioned about um, – the what you know as a cybersecurity person, what you can do with that information. I think that's, you know, since, since you know we started this this practice group at Gable back in 2015. It was myself and another attorney who has now moved moved into uh, uh, another uh, firm. But a lot of this, a lot of the discussions, and I'm I know you've had these discussions as well. Uh, it's almost like explaining to someone. Uh, how the show MacGyver works. You know, right. I can take I can take this name and I can take this password and I can take this and I can make I can make a, a felony out of it. You know, right. Uh, and and so again, it's that those the the value of those individual components is really hard to assign. Yeah, it's when you put them together and what they can mean. And so I think I think you're right. I think that we are seeing that, and I think really where we're seeing it is in the passage of more and more privacy statutes limiting the information that can get out in the first place. Yes. You know, it's a lot like, again, just going back years even farther this time than, than um, uh, 2003, but years ago, you know, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a movie called War Games with uh, mm -hmm. Matthew Broderick and Ali Sheedy. And, uh, the you know there's a famous line from that movie about it's about uh, nuclear deterrence and and the computer that is running through all the scenarios ultimately says the only winning move is not to play and that's what I've told my students uh, in the master's course at TU I taught a couple of years ago uh, when ask, asking them about what do they think the the best way to protect information is and especially walking through uh, the the various requirements and protections for information, none of which are universal. They're all right. very piecemeal, as you know. It's either based on the type of information, or where you live, or or uh, what you know what the source of the information is. And the the best way to protect that 
I think more and more people are seeing is to not let it get into a position to be acquired in the first place. And that's where we're seeing these privacy laws come up, uh, requiring in many instances uh, some pretty specific authorizations. And at least in it with one uh, proposed state statute that has not been adopted yet, actually requiring an opt in from the get go, not opting out. Right. Which is becoming more problem or more more common out there is that oh, you have to opt into it. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what you just said actually kind of uh, links to the question we got in the comments. So I encourage everyone to throw your questions in the comments. We'd love to, to hear from you. Uh, but the question from uh, one of our LinkedIn users is, what are some of the best practices around how organizations can better use consumer data and PII in employment cases such as evaluating employment risk prior to hiring? Um, and, and that's, uh, that's kind of an interesting take on it because, you know, I, I do a lot of uh, open source intelligence, you know, researching people, trying to find out um, about them when I'm talking to an organization. So, um, from that perspective, I'm going to try to keep talking. So give you a chance to, to get that, you know, throat cleared on that. <laughs> um, no, um. What do you think about that? I mean, using that uh, consumer data in employment cases, evaluating employment. So, I mean, there's two pieces of that you either ask the employee a couple of different things for information and then make a decision off of that. Or kind of what I get from the question is maybe you're using data that you can find on the Internet and, you know, capturing that data or purchasing that data, depending on where you're getting it, and then making a decisions off of that. Now, I would offer that that can be really dangerous. Um not only from a point of view of uh, once you have data, you have to protect that data. So if you're gathering data from an organization or about a data subject, a person, once you have it, then you have to protect it. Um, And as a CISO, I'm really cautious of that. You know, if if you're gathering data and capturing data, I want you to, we have to implement encryption. We have to do multi-factor. We have to access control, all these different things. Um, So if you are collecting data on a prospective employee, when they are not otherwise an agent of that organization yet, that might be problematic. I mean, what are your, what are your thoughts, Tom? Well, you know, the big caveat here is anytime you're talking about pulling in information from various sources to, to um, analyze a potential hire, um, there is, there, you know, the more, obviously, the more information that you collect, the greater the opportunity is to use that to form, for lack of a better term, an illegal impression of a, a prospective employee, um, because then you get it, then you run the risk of, um, and certainly not suggesting this is what the person asking the question is going to do. But I've seen where, because of some of the questions that are asked, there may be employment decisions made based on uh, improper factors. So right. that's the, the main, co- the, the big caveat is before you do anything like this, uh, I would make sure and, and speak with uh, a, you know, spend some time and talk to either somebody in your ear, if you've got in-house counsel in your company, uh, great. If not, uh, whatever employment lawyer that you work with to make sure that you are uh, following everything you need to do with respect to the particular employment laws that fall into this, into this area. Um, I think that the, just from a security and a privacy standpoint, 
I think the the big the, the the first thing I would start with is what is it that what is it that you're collecting and why? And by why I mean why is that important to your perception of this person as an employee? Um, most businesses conduct background checks. Um, that's not uncommon. Uh, businesses that do that, though, there are particular requirements under the Fair Credit Reporting Act in terms of what you can request and why you request it and what you have to tell someone if that factors into your decision. Um, beyond that, um, there are, you know, that's when it gets into, well, what is it that you're, you're really asking about? Why is it that you're asking or collecting this particular information? Um, is it because, for example, that you are concerned that uh, this person may be involved in illegal activity? Is it, for example, because um, you you have seen this person's or that someone has told you something about this person and you're trying to investigate it. Again, this is where uh, your, uh, your HR and your employment uh, lawyer, either in-house or outside, can really help you and make sure that you're asking the right questions to begin with. Uh, the other piece from a security standpoint, and this gets into, this is really splitting hairs, but understand what is what you may need for what purpose? And this came up specifically, for example, during COVID when I know a number of my clients were asking employees about their vaccination status um, because this was something that they were doing for health reasons. They were doing it to track um, their COVID risk in their offices. It was not something that was done for employment purposes. And as a result, that was information that really shouldn't be accessible by people making those employment decisions like a manager because they have no reason to know that. That forms no basis for their hire fire decision. So that's the other piece of it. It's not just make sure that you're collecting information for the right reason and not for an improper illegal purpose. But then once you get it, make sure that only the people that should have access to it have access to it. And that includes, yep. you know, just going the next step. And Jonathan, I, I encourage you, you, I know you can provide some examples because we've talked about it, but understand how that information is accessed both internally from, a, from an access level standpoint, but also internally from a, what we used to call soft access, from who is it that, you know, is someone able to request that information and get it? for right. whatever reason. And, and uh, you know, as one example with respect to this, and then Jonathan, I'll turn it over to you, is uh, I've gotten questions from clients before when some of their marketing departments want to use information to come up with a with a feel-good story. I mean, it's not something that's designed to, sure. to go after a particular employee, but they'll ask, hey, can we get this information about, about COVID vaccinations, for example, to to send something internally to say, hey, here's how we're doing, or right. why here's why I got vaccinated, um, but you know, make sure that you don't that the the reasons that are given uh, don't somehow suggest to an employee that hey, I better get vaccinated or I might lose my job. Right, 
Right. No, exactly. And, and I think that that really becomes the crux of when we're talking about privacy, um, this idea of why are you gathering that information? What are you going to do with it? And then how are you going to store it? How are you going to monitor it? You know, all these different things. And I think that from a security perspective, you know, from a CISO perspective, I don't want to have to secure data that we're not supposed to have. You know, that's one of those big things. So if we don't have a legal right to it, then we should not have it um, specifically because it's it would be illegal. But, you know, that's kind of a separate issue of my job is to protect the data. My job is to protect the systems. If I can have less data on less systems with less people having access to it, then that makes the security a little bit easier. Um, maybe not a lot easier because you still have to implement all the controls, but it's still a little bit easier. Um, but yeah, no, the, the, this idea of what are you doing with the data, uh, that is a huge one. And I, uh, I oftentimes find people who, uh, I may ask them, why do you have this data? Why are you making these decisions? They say, well, because I always have. And I think that that right there becomes the, one of the biggest problems in organizations is this mentality. They've always done something. So therefore they're going to continue doing that thing. Um, when privacy laws are changing and that is making it to be much more difficult to justify a legal right to that, that information. And I think that, you know, when I started doing this with you, um, all those years ago, I knew the security pieces. I knew how to secure the data, um, but I was learning what data could we have and why can we have it? I mean, I, I remember going to a, an organization I was working with and I, I asked them, you know, why do you have this information? And they says, well, because we need it. We need to make decisions off of it. I said, well, do you make this decision with that? Well, of course not. That would be illegal. Do you make this decision with that? No, absolutely not. We would never do that. It's like, then you don't really need this information because any, any decision you make off of this data, um, is illegal. You know, you shouldn't have it. So, I mean, I think that that is something that you're right. Uh, if you are any, if you have someone who is capturing information in your organization, they should absolutely be talking to your data stewards. So that would be your HR department, your general counsel, your external counsel, uh, your financial office. Because even though we're talking about PII, Sometimes we're, it could also be financial information or intellectual property or a variety of other things that if you have access to data, there should be this, this mindset of how do I protect it? Should I have access to it? And what should I do with it? I, one of the things I really like doing, I know we're, um, we're kind of on an extended tangent about this, but when I go to organizations um, here in the last year or so, one of my favorite things to do is I walk in, I go, okay, as it relates to data privacy security controls, um, some of the basic security controls that we talk about is, number one, uh, making sure only the right people have access to the information. Um, some basic controls, like don't leave the information in the, you know, sitting out on a desk somewhere. Don't let people take information home. Don't let them, you know, take it home and put it on their, you know, on their home computer. These are very basic controls. And but when I ask organizations, it's like, do you have these? And because no, we we just haven't been able to implement them. We we that's really hard to do. We can't do that. Then I usually bring up, you know, I've got a um, a roll of ten thousand dollars, you know, mm -hmm. with, with a rubber band on. And I go, okay, I bet you you already have controls 
that deal with this sort of thing? Would you take this wad of money and leave it on a desk overnight? Well, of course not. Would you just let any random person in the organization have access to it? Well, of course not. Would you let someone take it home with them and put it on their home desk? Of course not. So if we look at those things from that perspective, a lot of organizations already have those controls in place. They're just not thinking about it from the same perspective of, if I do the same controls with data as I do with money, you're so far down the road on that. But you also, you know, kind of thinking back to the misuse of it. Mm-hmm. If someone decides, hey, I'm going to take this money and go buy something for myself, or I'm going to go give it to someone in a pro, those are the sort of same sorts of things you got to think about from the data perspective. So if you've got access to data, you should, you know, be very careful with it. What are you going to do with it? Who are you going to have access to? And those are just the basic controls, the basic controls of how do you manage that data within the organization. Right. And, and to that end, uh, you know, I want to I want to go back and this kind of hooks back around to what we're talking about with, with respect to expectations to get to some of the things we, we had actually planned on talking about today uh, <laughs> is this idea of value, because there, you know, that 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 hits on a couple of real going back to that hits on, I think, something that we talked about earlier, but then something that you just said Um when we get to this idea of the value of information, um, because where, as, as, as you and I have discussed before, um, information is often exchanged for something of value by the people that have it. Uh, often, for example, you have a, uh, I've had clients where they will get a reduced rate from a vendor because the vendor is allowed to keep a good amount of information from their uh, from their systems that the, the client is using, and at first, you know, the, the the common response is, "Well, we're not using that anyway." Well, but understand what that is te- what that may communicate to someone. Uh, particular example I'm thinking of was a client where they were using a software or it was a computer purchasing software, and the vendor would have been able to retain their their usage information from this software for a reduced rate. Well, because the way my client was using the software, which was to plan the expansion of their business, what that would have given this software vendor is some insight into how my client was expanding in this country, which, you know, again, not something that I thought my client wanted to give away and in talking to them, I said, well, no, we really do want to keep that. Um, but it's, again, it's, it's making that connection between not just what, what value does this information have to somebody who, who wants to take it versus what information does it have to me? What, what value do I see in it? Because right. as, as you know, you and I've talked about with respect to, uh, uh, doing training for employees on uh, breach prevention. And, and a common comment is, well, you know, it's just X, Y, and Z information. It doesn't really mean anything. Well, um, to you, maybe. But if you've got someone who is doing this 24-7 and is pulling in information from various sources, that may be the last puzzle piece that they need. Yes. And, and a, a broader question is, 
if you are willing to, you know, if you go through this and you say, hey, well, this, you know, this isn't really information that we need, so we can provide it to this vendor uh, to get a reduced rate. Well, one of the questions then should be, if it's not this usage data that we were just talking about, if it's information that you had to begin with, why are you collecting it in the first place if it has no value for you? Yep. Yes, that's that's the uh, that's the piece that always gets me is what are you, what are you doing with it? What the value is? The other thing that I like using is when we talk about privacy. What is the definition of privacy? Um, the one I've been using here a lot in the last now two years is privacy is the choice of how to use the information. It's if it's my data, I should be able to choose where who I give it to and what they do with it, uh, you know, in terms of that process. And when the data subject does not have the choice, when the data gets sold by another controller or it gets sent to a third party and they have it or a hacker gets it, um, you know, that's when that loss of privacy comes in because they don't have that choice anymore. And in some cases, well, some people may not mind you know, not having that choice in mm-hmm. some, you know, there are times when someone's loss of privacy could lead to significant harm to themselves or their family or worse, you know, death, you know, that's something that, you know, we as IT security people and privacy people do think about is what's the worst thing that could happen? Well, you know, there have been people that died because of data breaches mm-hmm. and that's a major issue. And I don't want anybody to have to deal with that either. The fact that they they're on the the receiving end of that that harm, or having to think about I made a decision that led to the harms of these individuals because I let that data be breached, I let that get out, I collected it appropriate, you know, whatever. But you know, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I, I I think that's a good description of privacy, and and I think that it, it dovetails in what what I often say, which is. Um, Privacy is is the expected outcome of security. If you are appropriately yes. securing information, then you are maintaining someone's privacy. But again, it's it's or to, but then to I think adapt it to what you just said. When you are securing someone's information, you are providing them the control as to how that information is shared, whether it's yes. by you know verbal authorization or or what else and and. And that is something I think we've seen over time uh, change is the importance of that sharing in the minds of the general public in that that's how things get done. Um, Years ago, when I I mean, when I was in uh, financial services and and, uh, one of my uh, direct reports jobs was to go and uh, collect hard copy privacy notices or uh, uh, authorization of privacy practices from uh, financial customers. And often they would have some pretty colorful langu- language indicating that they didn't want their information shared. And sometimes we'd have to follow up with them and ask them, uh, okay, I see that you, you've told us that you don't want your information shared. Yep, that's right. I don't, want, I don't want you to share my financial information with anybody. And so that's when we had to have conversations like, oh, so, well, just to let you know, then um, your ATM card will probably not work next week. Right. Well, because those aren't our ATMs. We share that information with another with with the ATM vendor. But if you're not wanting us to share your information with that vendor, then we can't give you an ATM card. 
we can't allow right. your ATM card to keep working. And and so more and more we're seeing this that we've seen this acceptance of this sharing as necessary for uh, certain uh, transactions, certain uh, processes that that customers have elected to have. But the you still have the issue of um, from from the from the company side. You know, let's go back to that issue of value. You know, privacy for the individual may be, uh, I've chosen this service and therefore you can use my information for that. It's like my example earlier about buying something online. But from a larger scale standpoint, and this is where I think you've seen this in the, some of the enforcement actions that have come out under GDPR and, and others and the reasons for some of these privacy statutes to come out that are very broad in their scope is we're not talking about the the individual privacy decision for uh, one person's information. At at a corporate level, we're often talking about how do we manage this asset that is customer data? What is it that when we collected the information that we told the customers we were going to do with their information? And, and, And therefore, how can we use that to uh, accomplish whatever purposes uh, we are authorized to do by virtue of the fact that we've collected the information. Right. You know, I mean, if you think about it, it's not unlike, you know, it's not unlike banking. If, you know, again, to go back even farther, if you, if you've ever watched the show, the Beverly Hillbillies, there is a, a particular episode where I think it's granny goes into the bank and wants all of her money in a wheelbarrow. And Mr. Dreyfus is saying, well, I can't give you all the money because it's invested here and it's invested here. And, and, and because that when they opened the account, that was part of the allowance that they granted the bank was, you, yes, I, yep. the money is still mine, but you can use it for these purposes. Right. And that's where I think uh, as a, you know, as a culture where we need to start thinking about this, these sorts of authorizations that we're granting, because I think, I mean, you and I are aware of them because we, we live and work in this space, but when, you know, more and more people that I talk to, and I'm sure you as well, they don't think about their information being used by an organization because they may not see the value in their information that the organization does. Right. Yeah, no, they really don't. And, you know, a lot of times if you actually read the terms of use, the agreements, the various things that you have, they'll, they'll tell you what they're going to do with information. You may not understand it just because of the way they've written it, but there's a lot of things that I'll read. It's like, I'm not going to use that. I'm not going to put my information in. So, I mean, that's something that I encourage people to always do is read it. You know, read that that agreement when it pops up and says, oh, you need to read this instead of just scrolling at the bottom and checking the box. Mm-hmm. You know, you actually sit down and read it. Yeah. So I, one last thing on the on the value uh, piece before your question uh, that I wanted to mention earlier is you know, we still see this idea of the, talking about the value of information and the 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 value that how people are able to exchange their information for value now. Um, think about how many times you've been on a website and they say, "Hey, um, do you want fifteen uh, percent off your first purchase?" Well, you go in and you put your email address and typically your cell phone number, so you sign it for text messages. Right. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that is a very specific value um, proposition for them. But if you flip that around of what is that true value to the organization at that point and where is that going to, you know, spread out? I think that's another one of those questions that people don't often sit and think about. They think about that first 10% they get off, Mm -hmm. but you've also given that information out. What's going to happen from that point forward? Right. So, okay. So I do want to, um, we've got, you know, a handful of minutes left. We haven't got any hooks or anything. I see no, uh, warnings of time limits yet in the, in the chat. So, um, I did want to talk with you a little bit about, okay. To be fair to the audience, we warned everyone that once Tom and I start talking, we go back and forth (laughs) because we, we really are passionate about this and we love these topics. Um, but I wanted to talk with you. Uh, I wanted to ask you, um, transparency and the conflicting um, requirements that some organizations have, because I think that's really, really important to think about nowadays, because this may not have been like this even just a few years ago, but think about with these conflicting regulations, these requirements of sharing information versus protecting that information and not sharing it. So tell me a little bit about what you're seeing now in the, um, in the, in the community, in the industries where, Organizations are now being caught in the middle of they have to share something and they're supposed to protect some with that, that mm-hmm. conflict that's happening with that transparency. Sure. And and I'll, I'll preface this by saying these are, you know, I will give very 60,000 foot summaries yep. of particular issues. Um, if anyone is interested in more detail, uh, there's uh, much more information uh, out there, this is not intended to be any sort of specific legal educate legal recommendation or advice or anything like that. Um, but one of the one of the big things to happen that's going to kick in 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 uh, January of next year is the Corporate Transparency Act. And uh, in a nutshell, it it, it goes back to w- what we were talking before about the USA Patriot Act. It's essentially uh, the the act is a piece of legislation that was passed bipartisan uh, that now has implementing regulations that have been promulgated final form underneath it. And what those require is that starting January 1, 2024, um, companies that are formed that meet certain, that that meet very broad criteria. um, And again, without getting into a whole lot of specifics, because there are a number of specifics involved here that I don't want to, um, I don't want to try to delve into on this, but generally speaking, if you're forming an LLC, a corporation, uh, uh, any sort of entity that requires you filing something with the secretary of state starting January 1st, 2024, you've got 30 days to submit uh, beneficial ownership with respect to that entity that's created. The idea being that the government is going, is, has struggled with shell corporations and false front corporations that are hiding the beneficial ownership of the individuals that are actually involved. And if you go to the, the actual regulatory release of this that came out uh, this year, or let me see, actually it was, uh, sorry, last year, uh, September of last year, you can see uh, FinCEN, which is the Financial Crimes Enforcement Net- Network, uh, who issued these regulations, you can see their motivation for doing so. They speak very bluntly about how this has been a problem. People have misused our financial system. 
uh, it is therefore it is it is much more efficient uh, for us to ask the entities and the individuals who are actually forming these corporations and other entities to collect this information up front rather than uh, us having to go in and issue a subpoena for it later on. Um, this impacts not just the entities that are being formed, but those uh, individuals who are beneficial owners of the uh, entities themselves. Uh, this also impacts law firms to the extent, for example, that Gable may be setting up some of these entities. There is a requirement for us to submit some information as well. Um, and to your, so to your point, Jonathan, about, about uh, transparency in this, this conflict here, we have a, a big, a, a large-scale piece of, of legislation and regulation that takes effect in January that is going to result in a great deal of movement of information from uh, one party into a system uh, of the federal government, which has yet to be created. And as opposed to, you know, before when we've talked about the, the, the uh, uh, principle of, of um, least access for HIPAA, for example, um, where it's, it's only those people that need to know that information are going to have access to it. Here we're talking about a new requirement to uh, take information, presumably that's stored securely, and put it into a governmental system. Right. And, and so uh, there are a number of good reasons that the government has put forth and why they want this, but there, if you think about from, you know, I'm putting my, my, my inside compliance hat on, you know, just asking you to put your inside CISO hat on, think about how information moves, is collected and moves around inside an organization and the, the difficulty that this could uh, uh, pose for some of these organizations who may not have an infrastructure to support this, uh, movement of information yeah and that's really scary to me on that part you know i understand the the intent of it um my my concern is you know i work with a lot of organizations that you know we're still building security controls in you know, just trying to meet some of the requirements the new requirements or even older requirements of making sure that they're protecting that data and now we're introducing a significant transfer of data to a third party um, and then thinking about that that process of transferring it and storing it on the other side and the controls around it and the kind of data that's going to be in it so we've got about 30 seconds left tom i i really appreciate you coming out and and, and joining us we we could have talked you know for another two hours on this stuff and you know hopefully i can get you back out if you wouldn't mind and we can oh, continue yeah. talking through this conversation um i want to thank everyone for joining us today and thank you for the questions that came in in the comments uh, you can absolutely find us on your favorite podcast and on the voice american network on for and for security for all um kim should be back next week so i really appreciate you guys letting me come in and have a little fun with some guests for the last couple of weeks uh, again thank you tom uh, it's a great time Topic. I hope everyone got something out of it. Uh, please reach out um, on LinkedIn um, uh, if you guys have any questions. If you guys uh, like the, the content, if you guys like the, the show, please let us know. Otherwise, I hope everyone has a great weekend, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you for 
tuning into And Security for All. Be sure to join your host, Kim Hakem, for another episode of the show next Friday at noon Pacific time and 3 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Business Channel. And don't forget, you can follow Kim on LinkedIn by searching for Kim Hakem. That's Kim, H-A-K-I-M, to keep yourself posted on all of her upcoming cybersecurity events. cybersecurity professional that needs to earn continuing educational hours? FutureCon Events brings high-level cybersecurity training discovering cutting-edge security approaches, managing risk in the ever-changing threat of the cybersecurity workforce. Cybersecurity is no longer just an IT problem. To learn more about attending a virtual event, go to futureconevents.com or email info at futureconevents.com or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at FutureConHQ. Don't miss the weekly FutureCon seamless podcast series focusing on the insights and thoughts of chief security officers and industry pioneers making a difference throughout the world. Kim Hakem, CEO of FutureCon Events, and Darren Anderson, CEO and co-founder Next Robotics, host seamless podcast started by a team of entrepreneurs with experience in fields like smart cities, technology, cybersecurity. The result is a series of podcasts unlike anything you've ever heard anywhere. Listen where you get your podcasts, including Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher.